Over the last couple of years, it's become very apparent that evangelicalism is experiencing an identity crisis. Who speaks for it? Who represents it? What does it really even stand for anymore? There's a number of seismic shifts that are underway, and there's a number of issues that it's facing. And just like anything else, it's easier to focus on the issues on the outside and to ignore the issues on the inside. And one of those issues is leadership. Over the last few years, we've seen pastor after pastor resign or forcibly removed due to their moral failures or their toxic leadership. It's become far too common to discover that the persona on stage is also living a secret life. In 2018, Bill Hybel stepped down from Willow Creek after investigations found decades of misconduct and inappropriate advances, all happening while the church was experiencing explosive growth. Ravi Zacharias International Ministries was effectively dissolved by his own daughter after his secret life discovered the contacts to over 200 massage therapists around the world and credit card receipts showing that he paid for their housing, schooling, and monthly support with strings attached. Pastor Carl Lentz of Hillsong, New York resigned after an affair with someone that he met in the park. And then the greater scrutiny that came from that led to the resignation of Hillsong's founding pastor, Brian Houston, after two of his affairs were discovered. The former president of one of the largest denominations in the U.S. is now being investigated for sexual misconduct under his tenure. A pastor in DFW resigned after staff members resigned, and the elders were finally forced to face the toxic and aggressive culture of his leadership. And just this week, it came out that a prominent Miami pastor was using church funds to finance multiple affairs. And just last night, I got in my inbox another story just like this one. And sadly, all of that only scratches the surface. And the typical response is to look at each of those cases as though they existed inside of a vacuum and to just treat them as isolated incidents of their personal failures. You say, yeah, leaders fail, nobody's perfect, and we move on, yet we fail to see the bigger picture. We see leader after leader fail, but we never question the culture that creates them. And what if in the end, these leaders are just a reflection of something bigger? What if they're actually just a reflection of what the church has become? What if they're actually just a reflection of us? Last year, Christianity Today did a podcast where they considered that very question called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It took a deep dive into the rise of Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill Church in Seattle and how it became essentially the most influential church in the world. But it also covered its eventual downfall and the dissolution that it experienced virtually overnight. And it immediately grabbed my full attention at 3 a.m. on a road trip back home to Missouri. Because at the very beginning it said this wasn't just going to be a hit piece on 
Mark Driscoll and look at all of his failures. It was actually going to take a look at the larger context and the culture that created him. And they had my full attention. And the host asked a question that I will never forget. He said, why do we continue to platform leaders whose charisma far outpaces their character? If we step back and take an honest look, we can see how true that is. Because let's be honest, they exist inside of an ecosystem of evangelicalism that has become a multi-billion dollar business. And charisma sells. It's an industry that's constantly searching for the next visionary, the next dynamic leader to write the next New York Times bestseller. Offering book deals and speaking engagements and conference appearances that feel far more like a money grab than real ministry. Because now, Christianity has a bottom line. It has profit margins to meet and sales quotas to deliver. Now Christianity offers two things that don't mix very well with the cross, fame and fortune. Now it doesn't just offer a savior, it gives you a spotlight. And the word pastor is becoming far more synonymous with celebrity than shepherd. And behind them is a marketing machine that produces personalized websites and influencer accounts, engagement vehicles to sell to the masses, and charisma is what sells and empty shelves. And our modern technological world only reinforces the problem because we're constantly presented with endless voices to listen to through podcasts and YouTube channels and influencer accounts and content creators all built on charisma and character gets completely cut out of the equation. Why? Because you're never given the chance to evaluate it. We're just offered these detached spiritual relationships with leaders that will never know your name, they'll never know you exist, they'll never know your suffering or know your sorrow. You're just a number on an analytic report and on a subscriptions ticker. It's become an industry that's built on charisma and cuts out character. And that culture of charisma and attraction and appearance has bled into our churches that are built to attract the world to it rather than going out to the world. Worship services have become a spectacle with more lights than the Vegas Strip, filled with entertainment and engagement tactics. Who needs a catechism when your kids can take a picture with their favorite Pixar character? Who needs a house of prayer when you can build a house of play? Where's the priesthood of believers? The suffering of the saints for the gospel. Where's an otherworldly people in the world for the life of the world, unstained by the world? We see growing entertainment, engagement, and attraction, and spectacle. And at the top of that list is the charismatic leader that makes it all happen and better make sure that it doesn't stop. Perhaps you think I'm being harsh. Or perhaps we've just gotten so accustomed to it that we just become like the fish that asks, what's water? Because in the end, how much of what we see around us 
really reflects Jesus and his character? Is it really a reflection of him? Or is it a reflection of us? If we aren't willing to look inside at our own culture, then we're just like Israel in this passage who wanted charisma, not character. Because that Saul, Saul was all charisma with no character. He looked so good on those magazine covers. He had a million dollar smile. He knew how to work a crowd and never waste a moment. He was tall, dark, and handsome with a crown on his head. But on the inside, he was something else entirely. And usually Saul only comes up in a sermon series on the life of David. Which means that Saul is always compared to David. Saul failed, David was better, and we move on. But that just means we're always comparing Saul to everything that came after him instead of recognizing the context that created him and understanding and seeing what happened before him that put the crown on his head. And last week, Mark showed you how it was the people that wanted a king. Saul was not God's idea. The people came to Saul and said, or people came to Samuel and they said, Samuel, you're old now. And we want a king to rule over us. We want a king that will lead us. We want a king that will guide us and make us great. And why did the people want this? It's because they literally said it's because they wanted to be like all the other nations. They didn't care about what God wanted them to be. They just simply wanted to be like all the other nations. And so God told Samuel, Samuel, give the people exactly what they want. Give them their king. For they are not rejecting you, Samuel. They are rejecting me as king over them. But you will warn them of the ways of the king that will rule over them. So Samuel tells Israel exactly what they're asking for. He says, now you know this king is going to take from you. He's going to tax you. He's going to take your harvest and your money for his own purposes. He's going to take your sons to fight his wars. He's going to take your daughters to support his war machine. He's going to take the best of your lands and your vineyards and your flocks. And one day you are going to cry out because of him. And the Lord your God will not listen to you. Are you sure? Do you really know? what you're asking for. But the people say, we want a king. We want a king to make us great, to rule over us, and to give us the life that we envision for ourselves. And so Saul, the poster boy, tall and mighty, was presented to the people, and Samuel said again, because you have rejected the Lord your God as king, here is your king. And the people cry out, Long live the king. Long live the king. And as we take a closer look at King Saul in this passage, it's easy to simply look at him in a vacuum, as though all this is just about his own personal failures. And Saul certainly did fail. And he was responsible for his own decisions. 
But if we do that, we also miss the larger point. Saul was just a reflection of the people. Saul was just the embodiment of a much larger spiritual ecosystem that had rejected God and didn't really care about what he wanted. Because everything we see Saul do in this passage is no different than what we've seen Israel already do this entire story. His failures were just an expression and an embodiment of their failures. Because Samuel came to Saul with a mission from God. He said, The Lord remembers all that Amalek did to oppose Israel when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike down Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Everything must be devoted to destruction. That's not an easy thing to read, is it? So what's going on here? That's what's known in the Bible as harem warfare. It's when God devotes an entire people to destruction. Why? Because it's about divine justice. Remember, this is all one story. Remember, God told Abraham centuries before that when his descendants would be in Egypt for 400 years, he was also storing up wrath at the same time against the Canaanites because their iniquity iniquity was not yet complete. Storing up wrath. And so when God brought Israel into the land, he was also using them to bring judgment and justice upon the Canaanites. This is not ethnic cleansing. This is not God being cruel and mean. This is about God visiting judgment upon sin. And if you have a hard time with this, you have to also recognize this is small in comparison to what comes in the future. God will visit judgment upon sin. And the Amalekites were a harsh and brutal people, notorious in their cruelty, in their savagery, and in their child sacrifice. That's why Samuel says what he did to Agag before he killed him. You've made so many mothers childless. And in this passage, time is up. God is rising up in justice. But we also have to ask the question, why are the Amalekites still there? Because if you remember in Judges, Israel didn't care about the mission of God and driving out the inhabitants of the land. They chose instead to live among the inhabitants of the land. And they worshipped their gods and adopted their ways. So when God tells Saul to go and devote the Amalekites to destruction, we have to see two things. One, God is still sending his people on mission. Just because Saul is king now doesn't mean God's mission has changed. This was a chance for Israel to get back on track and to devote themselves once again to driving out the iniquity and idolatry and injustice in the promised land. God says, Saul, you're in charge now. But you will lead the people In my mission, God is still sending his people on mission. But secondly, Israel was not allowed 
to profit from it. Everything had to be devoted to destruction. It was the other nations that destroyed and conquered for their own gain and took the best of the spoils. But God said, not my people. He said, you're not going to be like the other nations because this isn't about you. It's about me and my justice. Because this is personal. And you will not profit from it. And so Saul rallied the war machine And when he returned home, he should have come home empty-handed, but he didn't. He came back with the spoils of war. He came back with King Agag in chains and all their livestock in tow. And when Samuel goes out to meet Saul, Saul says, I've done everything that the Lord has commanded. Samuel says, really, Saul? Why then do I hear the bleeding of sheep in my ears? And Saul says, oh, we we spared them to sacrifice to the Lord, but everything else we devoted to destruction. And what follows in this long confrontation between Samuel and Saul, we see Saul's true character that lies beneath all of that charisma. He's the leader that, after all, does embody the spiritual condition of the people because he operates in the same exact way We've seen Israel operate. Saul didn't really care about the mission of God. He wasn't concerned about God's greater purposes for his people or laying hold of his promises to become the extraordinary people that God wanted them to be. He laid it aside the same way Israel laid it aside century after century because he wanted the same things that they wanted. Saul wanted to look like the nations too. He didn't conquer in the name of God. He conquered in his own name because he wanted to look like the kings of the nations. So he brought home King Agag in chains to put him in prison to serve as a trophy to his greatness the way other kings did to get him out and show him to all the people that would come to his fancy elite dinner parties. He took the spoils of the Amalekites to enrich himself. And to lobby for favor among the people instead of resting in God's favor. He looked just like Israel who wanted to look like the nations. When they were in the wilderness longing to return to Egypt so that they could enjoy everything that it had to offer. And they could live like Egyptians. And Saul listened to the voice of the soldiers. When they said they wanted to keep the best of the Amalekites' possessions. And Saul finally admits that it was because he was scared of them. So he obeyed their voice just like Aaron when he made the golden calf and listened to the demands of Israel instead of listening to the demands of God. And just like Israel, Saul built his own golden calf. Israel in the wilderness made the golden calf and they said, Behold, this is who will lead us. This is who will guide us. And Saul did the same thing. After they returned home, Saul went on a victory parade. And he stopped in Carmel, and he built a monument to himself. A monument that said to the people, this is who will lead you. This is who guides you. 
Just like Israel, he was unwilling to see the sin and rebellion in his own heart. He abdicated responsibility. He blamed others. And then he baptizes his own disobedience. He said, we only brought the livestock home so that we could sacrifice to the Lord. We were only disobedient so that we could be obedient. And Samuel literally says, Saul, shut up. Stop. Be quiet. It's time for you to stop talking because this is what the Lord your God says to you. Has the Lord as great of delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as he does in obeying his voice? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. He's saying, Saul, no amount of sacrifice you offer to the Lord can cover your disobedience. You think a couple of sheep are going to cover over the fact that you ignore him? When you listen to the Lord, you will offer right sacrifices. But just because you offer sacrifices does not mean that you have listened to the Lord. And then Samuel has to break the news to Saul. He says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul was simply a reflection of the people. The embodiment live and in the flesh of their spiritual condition. A culture and an ecosystem of rebellion and self-gratification and excess built on ignoring the voice of the Lord and pursuing their own desires. But here's the saddest thing of all. The people loved it. They were eating it up. When Samuel goes out to meet Saul at Carmel, Saul had built that monument, but he'd already left. So Samuel had to catch up with him further down the road in Gilgal. Why? Because Saul was on a victory parade, showcasing his victory among the people, marching King Agag in chains through every town and showing off the spoils of war. And the people received him like the conquering king that they always wanted. Because finally Israel got what they desired, a king, a leader that was just like them and reflected them in every way and gave them the life that they always wanted. And that's the saddest part of this story. Do you see it? Here the people are rejoicing over the very king that God rejected. They were intended to be people of such extraordinary purpose and promise. But they were on a completely different page than God. And they were never willing to recognize it. And they missed out. And they never became what they were intended to be. So how can we connect with this? How can this challenge us? Like I said earlier, we're constantly presented with charisma in this production-driven ecosystem that just offers endless voices and content streams and books and podcasts and subscriptions. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing inherently bad about any of those things. There's plenty of books on my shelf and podcasts on my phone. There's incredible resources available to us that are good and helpful. But here's the thing. Has all of that content replaced Christ? Has all that content replaced Christ in your life?
You spend more time listening to the next podcast than spending time with Jesus in prayer. Do you find yourself looking for that next book on dealing with marriage or anxiety rather than looking at the scriptures and God's voice to you? We can so easily look to someone else to explain the Bible to us so that we don't have to wrestle with the scriptures ourselves, which is exactly where the Spirit promises to meet us. And in this, we can so easily do the same thing Israel did, where we place someone between us and God and think, this is who will help me. This is who will lead me to new life. This is who will help me deal with my anxiety or fix my marriage or deal with my addiction. This is who can guide me and help me and give me the life that I want to live. Yet amidst all that content, does it really make you feel closer to Christ and make you fall more in love with him? Or maybe you need to recognize that you've been offering sacrifices, but not obedience. It's so easy to do spiritual things unspiritually. We can get into a rhythm of offering the sacrifices of our time and our tithes and our service on Sunday, yet we ignore his voice Monday through Saturday. God takes a back seat in our jobs or our marriage or our parenting. We can live according to our own voice and we can live a life where we flip what Samuel says to Saul To sacrifice is better than to obey. Have you stopped listening to the voice of your God and being guided by his words to you? Because God's purposes for your life and for this church and for his people is no different now than it was in this passage. It's to establish his king at the center of your life to lead you and to guide you. Because make no mistake, God rejecting Saul in this passage is not because he didn't want a king over his people. It's because he wanted a different kind of king over his people. And Samuel tells Saul that God had already given the kingdom to another, to one that is better than he. And we know the story. God had already selected David. And through David, God will establish a kingdom built on character, not charisma. It's why the first thing we're told about him is that he's a man after God's own heart. But even David had to hear those same words. That his throne belonged to one that was better than he. Because through David, God will bring about the king of his choosing. And that king would be God himself. And when this king comes, he rejects charisma. And instead, he puts his character on full display. He wasn't born beautiful and attractive. Isaiah says he had no form or majesty that we should desire him. And no beauty that we should care about him. Why do you think he tells us that? It's showing us his character. He's born into a low-class family in a low-class town from which nobody thought any good could come. He was a tradesman 
and worked with his hands and gave to the world. He constantly rejected what the people wanted him to be and the leader they demanded because he called out injustice and unfairness and corruption. He pronounced judgment over the powerful and blessing over the poor. He found the lonely, the isolated, the afraid, and the outcast. Amidst the crowd, he could still hear the cries of the lame on their beds and the blind on the side of the road. He stopped to look for that untouchable woman whose life and health had fallen apart. He listened to the parent afraid for their child. He approached grief and he sat with the ashamed. He got on his hands and knees and washed the feet of his disciples, knowing full well that every single one of them, to a man, would abandon him that very night. And then this king was paraded through town in chains, carrying a Roman cross as the people mocked and rejected the very one over whom God rejoiced. And when God was fully justified to execute harem warfare on this world and everyone and everything in it, this king let the sword fall on him. And he devoted himself to destruction for the sake of his people. This king poured himself out as a drink offering, and he gave, and he gave, and he gives, and he gives, and he gives to his people. And one day, Christian, he will give to you. Because this king will place a crown on your head where you will rule and reign with him for all eternity as a co-heir with all the spoils of heaven. Behold the character of your king. And to whom could you possibly compare him? And why is his character so important to see? Why is his character so important to remember? Because it also reminds us of God's eternal purpose for you and for us. Because in Christ, we aren't given a king that reflects us. It's us who are to be a reflection of our king. It's why Paul says that we are being transformed more and more into his image and his likeness so that we might become like him. And when we forget that and lay the character of Christ to the side, then we shouldn't be surprised if we are on a totally different page than God, where we operate by our own purposes rather than his, and we end up rejoicing over what God rejects. And so may Christ be lifted high at Rockwall Press. May he be our greatest joy and our greatest delight. Might we reflect his character as husbands and wives and parents and children and neighbors to everyone and everything around us. Might we be reminded that we were given a king that became like us so that we might become like him. And might he be our anchor in a world where earthly leaders continue to fail us and they only will continue to do so. Because one day he will go on a victory parade. And he will march upon this earth and might we be accounted among the saints that follow him in his victorious procession. Might we reflect the character of our king for the glory of Christ and the life of the world. Let's pray.